University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. We'll take a look at the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Jonah is tucked away in a section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets, a, a misleading moniker of the impactful nature of these books. Uh, we're in the middle of our series entitled Forging Through the Fog, How the Church Leads a Grace-Filled Way in an Era of Partisan Politics. And we are looking at how Jesus' followers can live amid this highly divisive time in which we now find ourselves. We are not discussing partisan issues, we're not endorsing certain candidates, and we're not insinuating who you should and should not vote for. Instead, we are examining the question of what we should be doing instead of toting party lines and blindly giving loyalty to politi political figures. We're looking at how Jesus calls us to live out a way of peace, justice, mercy, kindness, civility, homogeny, and love, no matter the cost. What if Jesus is less concerned over whether we vote Democrat or Republican, Libertarian or Independent, and more concerned with our fidelity to the one who calls us to love God and love our neighbor, no matter who that neighbor is? What if Jesus is more concerned with how we treat other people than political wins. So this morning, we're specifically turning our attention to the hatred and vitriol among political factions. We live in such a divisive, angry, and turbulent time. But surely the Bible doesn't say anything about these matters. So for this, we turn to the book of Jonah, which I hope you will find is the perfect book to look at some of these things. It says this in Jonah 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship and got aboard from that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord." So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's so bad about Nineveh? Well, it's the capital city of the ancient Assyrian Empire in modern-day Iraq. The Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel around 722 BCE. But they didn't just stop with defeating them. The Assyrians carried away thousands of Israelites and resettled them to other parts of the Assyrian Empire. This was their policy to deport a conquered foe so that they wouldn't have a sense of nationalism. So it would break the pride and the hope of the people of wanting to rebel and replace them. Eventually, they replaced them with strangers from their land. So here is a time where it's this, not this creeping blow against the nation of Israel, but a, a steady blow in which we find that 10 of the tribes of Israel will kind of be lost to history. They will never be heard of again. That's how brute force the Assyrians brought against the foe. 
And the Syrians were so fierce, they would skin their prisoners alive and cut off various body parts. They would, uh, they would pull these tongues out of these people and display the mounds of human skulls in which they defeated their foe. So when you're starting to think to yourself, why does Jonah not want to go to the city? Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Why would God want to send him there? So the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what do you do when God calls you into unimaginable circumstances? among a people who have made you suffer. Except for Jonah, there is something deeper going on besides running from this fierce empire's capital. Jonah's perspective of Nineveh is somewhat reflecting how many Jews viewed their election as God's chosen people, that everyone else was filthy and apart from God's good graces. Consider the Pharisees as they badgered Jesus when he hung out with the Gentiles and the so-called sinners. In short, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God would do a mighty work there. And he didn't believe that the Ninevites were deserving of God's good graces. In Jonah's day, it was the Assyrians. And not too far in Israel's future, it would be the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Macedonians, and then the Romans. And whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans, these empires commanded Israel's sacred land. They subverted the people. They squashed every failed attempt of rising up and taking back what was theirs. In the Roman time, they literally crucified thousands of people as an example of what happens when you mess with our empire. They put taxes upon the people. They took advantage of wives and daughters. They stole their property and forced them to carry their equipment. And what mattered most was that they pressed upon the people their pagan beliefs. And so, yeah, Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't think they were deserving of God's grace. And so the question I think we have to consider this morning as we try to connect with this passage is, Who do we believe is beyond God's love? Who do we believe is beyond mercy and grace? Who is our enemy? Who is that person that you're thinking about right now at work, at school, in government, overseas, across borders, or heaven forbid, within this faith community? Who is that person that down to your core you despise? And I wonder where we would run to if God called us to minister to those people, to preach a message of grace and forgiveness to them. As one author put it, what it is that makes us so fond of this terrible love of hating certain people. For some of us, I think it's fear. There are many of us who are afraid that someone will take away what is ours or violate our sense of safety and security by a crime or an act of terror. We are so afraid that we can only respond to certain people whom we've decided are criminals, terrorists, with fear and hatred. For some, it's religious arrogance. We we believe that God is on a certain side and God cannot possibly be on other people's side, or especially those that we disagree with or are different in perspectives. Those tend to be our enemies. We tend to think that God is on our side versus the side of of the people that we despise. But this is what happened next in the passage. We know 
that Jonah goes on the run, except God is not confined to the Hebrew territory. So God shows up in the wind and the raging storm at sea. That The crew of the boat that Jonah is ferrying lightens the load of the ship by, by trying to prevent it from sink, by throwing things overboard. And things turn so desperate that the men turn to their gods and also Jonah to, to find out which god is so angry that's causing this disaster to happen. And Jonah realizes that he is the causation of the storm and tells the men to throw him overboard so that God will not punish them for his mistakes. But we learn that these crewmen are so gracious that they refuse to throw Jonah overboard. But until he insists, do they do so and throw him over? See, the storm calls as soon as Jonah sinks down, down into the water, and is swallowed up by a huge fish. Jonah is a fascinating character. For all of his character flaws, cowardice, unfaithfulness, racism, xenophobia, he also has the ability to teach us something very important about self-awareness. A little self-awareness goes a long way. Here is Jonah on the run from what he thinks is a God who's bound to his country, and yet Jonah finds that he is the causation of this raging storm, and so his self-awareness he, he, he comes to terms with what's happening around him. While the crew is freaking out, they're starting to throw things overboard, they begin to pray to their gods. I love how Jonah is sleeping in the bow of the boat. They have to wake him up because of this whole ordeal. And he realizes in the moment that he is to blame. Self-awareness can go a long way in our world that is so divisive, so focused on being right, so entrenched on creating sides. Despite Jonah's stubbornness, we find out what happens next. It says that Jonah is tossed overboard. He, he sinks into the sea and is swallowed up by this fish. And there in the belly of this fish does he begin to come to terms with the decisions he's making. See, scholars throughout the ages have tried to debate what kind of fish what, what this was. Was it a, a whale, some sort of big shark that swallowed him? But instead, what I want us to see this morning is not maybe looking at the finite details of that, but understanding that really, in reality, the big fish is a metaphor for repentance. Because there in the belly of this big fish does Jonah come to terms with the choices that he has made. He understands that he has been fleeing from God. He understands that he's been running away from God's transforming power to this community that he's called to go. He understands that his fear and his control and his hatred towards others has caused him to wound up where he is. And there Jonah cries out in repentance to God. We begin to see that self-awareness on the boat quickly turns into full-blown repentance as he comes to terms, as he changes his way of thinking and living. Freshly regurgitated from the fish's bowels, God calls, Nineveh, calls Jonah to Nineveh, and this time he listens. And when Jonah arrives, he preaches the message that God had given him to the Ninevites, and a miraculous thing happens. These people of Nineveh, the intimidating foe that Jonah ran from, they turned their hearts to God. The scripture tells us that the people repented, both the rich and the poor, the famous and the obscure, leaders and followers. The message even reached the king of Nineveh, who repented and changed his way by Jonah's message. 
And Jonah 3.10 states, God saw what they had done, that they had turned away from their evil lives. God did change God's mind about them. And what God said, what he would do to them, he would not do. You see, there's nothing more beautiful in this world than seeing broken lives being reshaped and made new and whole by the love of God. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that heaven throws a party when God's children discover that they are loved and transformed by God. And, and this is a brilliant moment. This capital city of this horrific empire that was on the cusp of destroying themselves from the inside out because of their culture receives God's message and intentionally chooses to change. This is what God had desired all along. This is why Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. God desires to forgive and transform lives. As one author put it, God's love doesn't excuse our actions. It's about our actions. God's compassion is not an ethical force. It cares not one whit for what we do or who we are or what craziness we are mixed up in. God's compassion is presence that stays with us regardless. It doesn't fix our problems. It doesn't spare our pain. It doesn't protect us from the tragedy or misery or fear. God's presence changes nothing, and yet it changes everything. Because the soul needs love in order to survive. Love is the very stuff of life, as elemental as breath and just as necessary. This is the message and invitation of Jesus, to, to follow God into a new way of thinking and living. Jesus is inviting us to experience a radical and beautiful transformation through God's love. And all of this was possible because Jonah checked his ego in the bowels of the fish. Jonah put to side his hatred and his disdain for these Ninevite people. And Jonah chose to live out God's calling of love, not just a love that was easy, but a love that was for one's enemies. But unfortunately, the story isn't over. And you'll hear why it's unfortunate in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God, God, I knew it. When I was back at home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer of grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. God said, what do you have to be angry about? But Jonah just left. He went out of the city to the east and sat down in and sulked. He put together a makeshift shelter and a leafy branches and sat there in the shade to see what would happen in the city. God arranged for a broad leaf tree to spring up. It grew up over Jonah to cool him off and to get him out of his anger sulk. Jonah was pleased and enjoyed the shade. Life was looking up. But then God sent a worm. By dawn the next day, the worm had bored into the shades of the tree and withered away. The sun came up and God sent a heat, blistering wind from the east. The sun beat down on Jonah's head and he started to faint. If, if you're thinking to yourself, what in the name of Joe Burrow just happened in our story? 
you wouldn't be alone. Because some craziness just happened in our story. Jonah went from being a xenophobic prophet, on the run, repenting while in the belly of a whale, to preaching a message of repentance in the streets of Nineveh and seeing the entire city transformed by God, only to throw the biggest hissy fit in biblical history. Jonah wants the bad guys to get what they deserve. Jonah runs because he knows that God will forgive them, and he'd rather die than be a part of it. This is precisely the outcome that Jonah had feared. He wanted the sinners to suffer from God's punishment, and that's why he ran, because he knew God would do such a thing. As you can imagine, God is not going to give up on Jonah's tantrum. And while he's having this little flare uh, after being swallowed by a fish and all its drama, God causes this tree to quickly grow up to give Jonah rest and respite. And yet a worm comes and burrows itself into the tree, and there Jonah's shade is no more. Nothing will apparently shake this man of his hatred for the Ninevites. And now we know why Jonah fled. You see, this is often the mentality that we have within our religious circles, within our political circles. It's our perception that we are this little membership-only club in which no one else is welcome except people like us, who see the world like us, who see faith like us, who see Jesus like us, who see politics just like us. Now, here we find that this membership club is not maybe what we thought it was. That maybe God doesn't draw the lines in the sand in the way that we draw lines in the sand. And I think the story of Jonah can be preached a thousand sermons in the church today. In a day and age in which the church wants to tell the world who God is for and against, who is welcome and who is not, the story of Jonah teaches us that God desires to extend a second chance mercy and grace and transforming love to all people, even the people that some churches audaciously say are horrible and hell-bound. And so Jonah draws us to a place where we begin to understand who is our enemy? Who is the person we have deemed outside beyond forgiveness? Who is that person that if they walked in the worship space this morning, we might even get up and leave our seats? I love the question that God asked Jonah in verse 9. What gives you the right to be angry? I think that's a hard question we should ask ourselves, is what gives us the right to be a people of hatred and exclusion, people of condemnation and judgment? Who gave us the right? And it might be worth considering that just because we claim to follow Jesus doesn't mean that God is on our side. Just because we draw a line in the sand full of exclusion and discrimination and judgment towards others, especially in this day and age where we are so divided over our political allegiance, don't assume that God is on our side. But because we learn from this story that God's compassion is for all, including you and me. Jonah lacks compassion for the people in the city. He lacks compassion, honestly, for himself. We see that all the other characters around Jonah are people of compassion, including the sailors who refuse to throw him overboard. And yet we see that God pours compassion after compassion after compassion, even on the man who's so filled with hatred 
we find that God is on the side of the needy, the outcast, the broken. And God desires to pour compassion in our lives. God is calling us through Jesus to be agents of compassion in this world. And we really want to blur the teachings of Jesus when we talk about love. We think that Jesus is just talking about a love for humanity in general, except that Jesus begins to put bullet points around those that we are called to love. Because Jesus says that we should love our enemies, even those that strike us on our cheek or want to take our coat and mistreat us. Enemy, the Greek word is ekthos in Greek. And it means a hostile or one who hates you which means one in turn you hate. So Jesus means that the person that you're thinking about, that at work or school or government, across borders that we despise down to the very core of our existence, Jesus is calling us to love and serve all people in all places in all walks of life. He's calling us that no matter a person's race or their ethnicity or their political affiliation or their economic status or their gender identity or sexual orientation, their body shape, if they're tattooed or pierced or drunk or sober or self-righteous or self-loathing, homeless or poor, rich or shallow, Jesus is calling us to love all people. And we can think about those people in our community, across our political lines, those are the people that Jesus calls us to love. And I realize this is an impossible and unfavorable message in our time in which we are told to hate, in which political hatred seems to be the politically correct maneuver. I'm reminded of Nelson Mandela. He, uh, he arrived at Robben Island Prison in 1964. And Immediately, the, the inmates took to Nelson Mandela's leadership, which meant that the prison guards immediately looked to punish Mandela for being a leader among the people. And one particular story comes to mind is it says that they actually um, had him dig a hole in the ground the size uh, of a casket. And there he thought, well, this is it. This is where they're going to kill me and literally bury me in the ground. And it says that while he was in the hole, the prison guards unzipped their pants and began to urinate on Mandela. And yet many years passed, and eventually we know that he got out of prison, and he became the president of South Africa. And when, when his associates were asking him who he wanted to invite to the inauguration, all these liberation leaders from all over the country, the people that stood by him through these trying times, they knew those would be the people that he desired to have there, except he made sure that the top of his guest list were the very prison guards that urinated on him that day. So we looked at Mandela not as a person just of strength, but a person of compassion and grace to love even the people who were willing to denigrate his very humanity. This is what Jesus is calling us to. See, the limitations of calling people to love others, even our enemies, it continues this mindset within us that we have to think about people in categories. We other people, there's other people we can't love because of the type of person they are, because of their economic status or their political affiliation or their choices in life. But Jesus calls us beyond the mentality of othering to begin to see people as a child of God. 
There's that infamous passage for some or famous passage for others in Matthew 25 in which Jesus says that I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, and in prison, and you fed me, you gave me something to drink, you invited me in, you clothed me, and visited me. And other group of people, he said, you saw me in such circumstances, and you did nothing for me. And Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done unto me. The challenge of that passage is that Jesus calls us to see beyond the label of Democrat or Republican or pro-life or pro-choice or anti-gay or LGBTQ inclusive or anti-immigration or pro-DACA, white supremacist or racial equality, capitalist or socialist, or endless other comparative labels that we put on other people. Jesus knows that we will create those labels and he calls us to push through them in order to love all people. Can you imagine what the world would be like if Jesus' followers faithfully followed in the way that he called us to? What would happen if we believed in God's love enough that we refused to demonize the other side of our political lines? Maybe we would begin to see that Jesus, if we faithfully follow him, will give us new eyes to see others. Can you imagine what the next election cycle would look like if Jesus' followers took his radical call to love others, especially our enemies, seriously? Can you imagine how we might transform the world? And what I want to challenge us to this morning is this. If we cannot believe that is possible or that it won't make that big of a difference, Maybe we're more like Jonah than we care to admit.